So today in this interview, I had a chance to talk to Mark Ward. Now, if you followed this channel, you may have seen that I've linked to a few of his videos from time to time when reviewing different Bibles. Mark is someone who I came across through his YouTube channel. He is a philologist. That's somebody who focuses on how words are used. And he works for Faith Life, editor of Bible Study Magazine, and the author of this book, Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Mark is probably known, at least in the YouTube world, as someone who's done a lot of work in the King James Only debate. For those of you that don't know, King James Onlyists are people who believe, for whatever reason, that the King James Bible, or the King James Version, is the definitive, inspired English translation of the Bible. And there are varying degrees of King James Onlyist. But Mark has done a great job because he was raised in that environment. Yet through his work in biblical studies and languages and translations, he's come to see the error of that view. And so one of his focuses in his own ministry has been to help lead people into a more gracious understanding of modern Bible translation. So I got to spend a little over an hour sitting talking with Mark from his home out in the Pacific Northwest. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. And if you do, one way you can show it is by subscribing, not just to Disciple Dojo, but also give Mark a subscribe as well, because he puts a lot of work into his YouTube videos and he is producing some really good content. It's nice when we can sit and talk to people who come from a different tribe than we do, even within evangelicalism. It really was a pleasure and a joy to sit down and talk with Mark. Mark. This is the first time we'd actually talked face-to-face -face since we connected on social media a little over a year ago. So I am talking today to Mark Ward, and he is the author of Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. If you are familiar with YouTube Bible teaching uh, review content. You may know Mark from his own YouTube channel, which I've enjoyed. I've linked to him in a few of our videos before. He is a fellow Bible geek. I say that lovingly. He is a fellow redhead. I say that admirably. And he's on the West Coast. He's out on the other side of the country. So we were able to connect through our wonderful technology here. And I wanted to introduce Disciple Dojo viewers to Mark. And we're going to talk to him about some of stuff that I think is pretty fascinating. So Mark, welcome. It's great to have you in the dojo. It's great to be here. I really enjoyed uh, kind of getting to know you over the last probably year or so. And I really appreciate the shout outs that you give me sometimes. Thanks to well, my videos. I, your videos are, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your videos in a minute because uh, one, just I want to learn some things from somebody who does it. But when I was setting up uh, when we moved, we transitioned, Disciple Dojo used to be primarily a weekly teaching ministry. We did a live Bible study. There was a restaurant, a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse that was owned by a friend of mine, and he would provide a buffet lunch every Tuesday and say, invite whoever you want and do a Bible study. He just wanted to reach business people in the community. So we did that for about five years until wow. COVID. COVID shut it down. So at that point, we had to transition to YouTube and, and really focusing on YouTube. Uh, so we had to invest in, you know, studio lighting and cameras and all that kind of stuff. Your channel, there were a couple of people whose channels I looked at, but your channel was one that caught my eye in terms of not just the technical stuff, you know, your lighting was good and the delivery was very good, but also you were doing content that resonated with me and with the, the people that follow Disciple Dojo because it had a lot to do with kind of the behind the scenes stuff in Bible translation. 
And that's yeah. one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you. So I know who you are. Uh, some of our viewers know who you are. But for those who don't, how would you introduce yourself to a group of people that were unfamiliar with your work? Primarily, how would you describe yourself? Christian, husband, father, uh, writer, editor, presenter, and ultimate Frisbee player. Choral music enthusiast. I really love the Western classical choral tradition. And I have a soft spot for, uh, you know, most good acapella, like uh, barbershop. I still still enjoy that. That's, you, those are the main uh, adjectives, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a renaissance man. Oh, yeah. You stick barbershop in there, you know I'm sophisticated. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, I, I have a, a lot of, I have some seminary training under my belt. I think that's probably relevant too. I spent a lot of years in seminary. I, I have been some kind of professional writer of Bible related stuff since I was 20. No, since I was 20. Okay. And I've, I feel really privileged to have worked for numerous good institutions and to have written for them and uh, to have a lot of good editors. Um, and I really care about the stuff that you've just been talking about, <clears throat> you know, the behind the scenes Bible stuff. And I suppose my message for the last number of years while working for Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible software for the last seven years now, um, has been study the Bible carefully, you know, study the Bible uh, according to uh, faithful, careful, you know, academically informed, but not overwhelmed methodology. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've focused, as you, you know, you mentioned my book, Authorized, I focused a lot on um, the distrust that that a lot of lay Christians have, and, and it's not just King James-only Christians, but the distrust a lot of them have in, in our modern Bibles. And I've tried to urge people to see the value in uh, reading multiple Bible translations. So in a nutshell, that's who I am. <laughs> you know, I should add one more thing. I've, I, I care about the church. I love the church. And I've been an assistant pastor. I've been an outreach pastor. Um, I My church, where I was an assistant, actually voted to close uh, toward the end of COVID. Um, you know, no big blow up or anything. It was just time and COVID was one of the reasons. And so now I'm just starting again to be uh, teaching the Spanish class and uh, leadership Sunday school class at my new church where my wife and I are members. And I have three children. Did that get it all? I think it does it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you didn't give us your waist size and your social security number. But other than that, I think we've got everything. Two, two, five. No, wait. <laughs> so you mentioned that you teach the Spanish class. Do you teach in Spanish? Well, sort of. Uh, I, I minored in Spanish for two years, and I got to about 70% fluency, I say. And then I just kind of plateaued because the Lord hasn't given me the opportunity, or I haven't made the opportunity, kind of both, to yeah. be immersed in mm -hmm. a Spanish-speaking country. I've just done little mission trips, and I just never could quite get past that break. So um, I have a translator, but I can understand what he's saying. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> and uh, and then I'll say a few things in Spanish, or like he asked me to pray in Spanish, and um, so I can do that. That's fantastic. I really, if I could, there's a few languages that if I could pick up just immediately, uh, obviously Span Spanish, Arabic, uh, there's a couple that I would love to, you know, I can muddle my way through uh, Greek and Hebrew, but only biblical. <laughs> All the languages I've right. ever studied are dead languages. And so they're kind of useless for talking to living people today. But, you know, I could somewhat make my way around the Holy Land and at least read the letters on the signs. <laughs> that was helpful. So seminary, what was your, if you had this, your theological, well, tell me your undergrad and then your theological postgrad education. What is that? 
Yeah, so um, one of the reasons I'm interested in the King James only controversy is that I grew up basically within independent fundamental Baptist King James onlyism, and I always say after that I had a positive experience. Nobody abused me. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of negative stories that go on about that circle of the church, but I didn't experience those things, and I think my church was a really good one. You know, in that realm, I've come to be forced to disagree with them on a number of items, especially the. King James only controversy, but I'm really grateful for them. Mm-hmm. They were sort of adjacent to Bob Jones University uh, on the spectrum of American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. I didn't really realize I was crossing a line when I went from my King James only Christian high school to Bob Jones. I would, but to the leaders there, like at my old church, you know, they would have perceived that, but they didn't stop me. Mm-hmm. They supported me just fine. They were glad to have me going off to a Christian college. But I was, of course, while I was there, disabused of my King James onlyism, very kindly and gently. In fact, so gently that I don't even remember it. Mm-hmm. I remember being King James only, and I remember not being King James only, and I don't exactly know what happened in between. Uh, I think it was the pastor I had then, but that pastor was the first expository preacher I'd ever really heard mm-hmm. that I know of. Um, perhaps I just didn't recognize it previously, but I just sat on the edge of my seat. I just absolutely ate up his uh, sermons on Ephesians, for which I was present, you know, pretty much for the whole series. It took him five years on Sunday nights. So he would typically take a break once a month for our communion services that we had on Sunday evenings. And that was the Lord's means of calling me into Bible teaching ministry. And uh, I really respected that man, still do, absolutely. I cite him and think of him all the time. Um, He was my mentor and still the best preacher I've ever heard. Mm. Uh, Fantastic. And I wanted to be like him. And so I did the thing that I don't really recommend to others. And I got all my degrees in one place. I switched from graphic design to Bible at Bob Jones. And then I got an MA in Bible and a PhD in New Testament interpretation. Uh, from BJU Seminary, and I graduated, oh boy, uh, technically 2011, so it's been a little over 10 years. I wrote my dissertation on Paul's positive religious affections, which had a, a major um, linguistic emphasis as well as a theological one, but I could tell I'm not a theologian. There's just so much reading and knowledge that's in, required. <laughs> I want to be responsible, but I'm a linguist. I like to call mm. myself the slightly older word, word philologist in part because I think C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, used that of himself. Yes. That's my uh, path. And I'm, you know, um, I'm not quite in the same place you are in everything. You know, I am reformed and I'm more or less in the you know, reformed dish Baptist world, mm-hmm. but I've never been formally confessional, although I was ordained in the last two years, according to a, a version of the London Baptist Confession that I created because I couldn't stand the older archaic English being in my own, um, you know, doctrinal statement. Uh, but that that's the world I'm in still. Right. But at Faith Life, you know, I'm serving what I love serving all the Bible focused people. Uh, from whatever denomination that it is. And I find it really interesting, you know, what people kind of come out of the woodwork when I write Bible-focused stuff. It is, well, one of the reasons I think is because you do a very good job in presenting um, kind of the landscape of things in a way that's not divisive. You can tell in your work, you're you're very reconciliatory, reconciliatory, conciliatory. You're the linguist yeah. who can uh, correct me, but you're you you do seek to build bridges rather than walls, which a lot of people who specialize in uh, analyzing Bible translations or reviewing Bible translations or, or kind of popularizing different concepts don't always do a great job at that. But that's it's one of the things that I resonated with you because yeah we you know we we 
fall on different sides of the political, I mean, the theological, I don't know your politics, we fall on different sides of the the (laughs) theological spectrum on a number of issues I could pick up from your videos, but not in a way that is those things are the front and center. Um, And I knew like, Mark was probably somebody I would enjoy just hanging out with and talking to. And, and if we did come to things where we disagreed, it, it would probably be a pleasant and a respectful disagreement and a challenging, right. uh, you know, iron sharpening iron kind of thing, rather than a frustrating bang your head against the wall kind of thing. So that's yeah, you, you I, exude that your videos do and your 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 even your writing, they they communicate that that you have a heart for people outside of your tribe. Um, yeah, in within evangelicalism. I, I kind of always want to say at this point that, you know, in case anybody's thinking, wait a minute, Bob Jones University and, you know, ironic ability to talk to others beyond your tribe, those don't go together. Um, and there is some truth there. I think many of the public leaders of BJU in decades past were um, uh, separatistic to the point of isolationism and used rhetoric that I actually went back and I worked at the fundamentalism file at the BJU library for five years. It was an awesome job. I was paid to read and write summaries of articles on all kinds of religious and political topics. Mm -hmm. So it was like a study center for undergrads. Um, I absolutely loved it. It's like another education next to what I was doing. And I read some of the correspondence of one of the the presidents of Bob Jones, Bob Jones Jr. And uh, he certainly had gifts, but he could be um, terribly pugnacious. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say that that is not really what I was taught there. That was sort of the public face. But my professors were, you know, 98% of them really gracious people who Mm -hmm. love the Lord. And because Bob Jones was multi-denominational from its very beginning, it was coming out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. It had a healthy focus on, on the Bible. And the more you get into denominational specifics, the more you are going to divide people. But in order to keep together a multi-denominational coalition, you really have to focus on the Bible. And I've taken that basic insight into my work for Faith Life and found that it works really well. I have my tribe. I care about our differences in the right circumstances and certainly in my local church. You know, I'm, I am going to put up walls. Um, but when I'm serving the whole church, I just have I do not care to deny I want to. Nay, I want to affirm and avow, as the King James translator said in their preface, that um, that evangelicalism is bigger than my tribe. Yeah. The church is bigger than my tribe. I just today published, uh, posted a review um, on the, the Grace and Truth Study Bible that Al Mohler had recently released, and uh, it was it, the review. I was trying to communicate that same point. Um, it was, and it ended up being a gracious review. I actually thought it was a very good study Bible in a lot of ways and recommended it, but I was trying to instill into readers that it's possible you can have your, your, your folks that you resonate with, you know, I'm, I'm broadly evangelical Wesleyan, um, you know, evangelical Methodist and, and I resonate with a lot of my Baptist and charismatic Pentecostal reformed Anglican friends. And it's part of it was because coming from Gordon Conwell, we are also in an interdenominational seminary. And so you would have faculty who were Baptist, faculty who were Anglican, faculty who were Lutheran, and they would teach in their classrooms, they would teach what they believed and, and where they were coming from, but they couldn't get away with straw manning other positions yeah. because they had faculty colleagues who they knew you were gonna go sit in their class and hear from them. So they had to be responsibly 
persuasive in wanting yeah. you to see their view without being, like you said, pugnacious. And I think that's something that evangelicalism, broad evangelicalism is strengthened by the more we're able to do that. It doesn't mean you don't have your views and your opinions. It doesn't mean you don't argue for them. It doesn't mean you don't say when you think someone's wrong. You just, right. you don't have to say they're a heretic necessarily. Right. Right? Like somebody can just I mean, be wrong. Those, right. Those do <laughs> exist, but pulling out the heretic card, you know, early is a, is a classic strategy of people who I think are described by Galatians 5 as displaying the works of the flesh, divisiveness, mm -hmm. contention, and strife. Mm -hmm. That card, you know, just heats up the debate on anything. And again, sometimes it's true. You need to pull right. out that card because heresies exist. But I, I think I was trained at Bob Jones to think really carefully before I mm. pull out that card. And I, I'm grateful for that. You, you yeah. can't get away. You're not going to be as persuasive with people who really love the Lord and love their neighbor, you know, true Christian people. You're not going to be as persuasive with them if you're constantly, you know, showing your tribal card. That, that yeah. sort of um, tribalism, I don't know, it breeds, it breeds in people. Um, well, it breeds the works of the flesh. Yeah, I'll just yeah, stop yeah, absolutely. I think, it, and it, it, I know of no other way to, to swell someone's pride than to make them think that they are, you know, on the right path. And everyone who disagrees is because they're a heretic or in political language, they're a sheeple. Uh, you know, they're right. just following all it, our, our culture. We're, you and I are living in a cultural moment that's pretty inherently divisive and the whole yes. social media youtube all of these things i mean youtube algorithms yes. thrive on divisive clickbait headlines and thumbnails right. and so as christians and christian uh content creators if people want to use that term there's i struggle with how do i get stuff in front of people you know if i have a, a video right. teaching series on something that i think is pretty important but it doesn't have a uh, you know, there's I, don't, I can't think of a clickbait headline if I'm going right. to talk about ancient right. Near East background to Tiamat and Leviathan kind of stuff. Um, so in your when you're prepping, I, I want to talk a little bit kind of uh, and you can be as transparent or as guarded as you want. Uh, you may want to keep sure. the secret sauce secret and not show or tell everything about how you do what you do. But how do you go about when you're going to make a video? Uh, presenting it, how, how, what is your mindset in making a video saying, okay, how do I get people to click that I think will benefit from this without it yeah. being misleading clickbait or trendy in what's going on right now? Yeah, I, I've worked through this. I had a really fantastic editor at Faith Life when I first got there, who's been probably more influential on my writing than anybody else. And that's saying something because I've had a number of good editors who've been real friends of mine. And, and we talked a lot about clickbait titles because they are part and parcel of you know titling is 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 an essential aspect of the ministry of writing online and that would include presenting on youtube and uh we agreed that we would be willing we're willing to lean in the direction of clickbaitiness only if what we promise we deliver so you know countless times you know uh, well among the times i've been tripped up by clickbait myself <clears throat> frequently what's frustrating to me is that they promise some secret you know you'll never expect this or that and then it turns out to be only under the most generous definition 
could they indeed said to be telling the truth so i'm willing to use conflict and curiosity i got those two c's from ray comfort somebody relayed this to me i thought it was really helpful Mm -hmm. Uh, i want to use those things to drive interest in my videos but i've also always had a little bit of a contrarian streak when it comes to this and i remember being a young blogger and noticing that other guys my age in the you know theo blog space were doing book giveaways and other things that are not wrong um, at all. I'm not saying that's bad, but I just felt like I, I want only my content to pull people in. I don't want to use marketing. And again, like I work for a marketing department. Marketing is not wrong. I'm not saying anybody else has to do it my way, but I, I erect a little bit of a barrier to entry. And so I don't, um, I don't spend a whole lot of time on those titles. I do think I'm thinking conflict and curiosity, but sometimes my titles are really wordy and I always love uh, you know, over the centuries, titling has changed a lot. And I'm fascinated by back in the 19th century, I guess, or maybe it was the 18th, they would have a title, you know, um, the the greatest house in the country, comma, or, and then they have a subtitle rather right, than a right. colon like we do. And so sometimes I ape that, you know, I'm just playing around and I have private jokes that sometimes only I get. And that's probably not good YouTube titling practice. Don't do what I do, but that's what I'm thinking. That's my... <laughs> secret sauce well it the good thing is when somebody picks up on that you immediately have a fan that's going to stick with you like when somebody catches a reference or a little thing you know i have people that will notice things in the background on my shelf here pop culture nerdy stuff and they're like i've never seen somebody teach the bible with big trouble and little china action figure behind him what is this all about (laughs) you know like so you can kind of catch so when you drop something that's like in insider knowledge or somebody who would have to have read 18th century literature to pick up on it. Uh, I think, yes, it, it doesn't draw as many, you know, you don't get the wide masses, but the ones you do, you know, that they're going to appreciate it. And there's something rewarding about that. Yeah, which I would not do in church. Right. Right. When I'm in church, I'm serving those people, but on YouTube, I feel like, okay, I can, I just hate this terminology, but it's, this is one place when it works. I can be myself and, and people either like it or, you know, most cases they don't. That's okay. (laughs) Um, One of the reasons I do that is I found I'm incredibly busy. I really don't have time for a YouTube channel. I don't know how I do it. I have to write in a fit Mm -hmm. of, you know, like, like a manic fit almost to get it all done. I have to shoot and edit in a manic fit. I so I don't have time really to be translating everything I do into something that's more accessible. I feel bad saying that because a, a big part of my message is that you got to be accessible for the plowboy. Um, but I'm not a Bible translation, and I also feel like my my audience is uh, pastors and other Bible nerds. I'm really not mainly reaching out to the average person in the pew, and I'm not putting that person down or putting anybody down who reaches that person. I think it's a wonderful skill to have. I just interviewed Christiane Nibwile, the Beatty's wife, and she wrote a book called Literarily about the genres of scripture. And I feel like she did an excellent job just being approachable and accessible to the person in the pew. When I'm on my YouTube channel, that isn't really my focus. I'm trying to influence the influencer. So if somebody says, oh, I like your channel, but I'm just a person in the pew. No, you're not. You're a Bible nerd. You know, right, I've right. kind of, I've, I've winnowed you out by if you like this stuff, then you're a pastor or other Bible nerd. Yeah, you have an appreciation for it, and it definitely shows. Do you, when you make a video, um, how, how do you start to finish? Do you write it out 
entirely as a script? Do you film? How, how much more do you film? Like, for instance, just background, when I do a Bible review, uh, the review may end up being between usually 20 minutes is about what I want to shoot for. And most of the time when I film, what I film is going to be 40 minutes to an hour. And I end up cutting that down significantly. But I don't write anything down beforehand. I'm, you know, I'm just, I've always been more off the cuff. Your videos, I don't notice very many cuts in them. And I, your precision, your word precision is very clear. So it's, I'm wondering, do you write beforehand? Do you memorize what you oh, yeah. write? You, prompter? How does that work? Um, there is only one bit of secret sauce in there, but I'll tell you almost everything else. I script 99% of my videos and I do use a teleprompter. Um, if occasionally I'll do a book review and I'm just tired and right. I will, I'll say something and then stop and try to be completely still and then say the next thing. I've done that just a couple of times and then I'll just cut out those gaps. That's actually really laborious. I find the most efficient way. Uh, so, so that's easier to do in, in at the moment, but it's harder later on when I'm editing. It takes mm -hmm. much longer. So the, the most efficient way is I write it all out in that manic fit. I'm, I'm just all the time writing. I mean, writing, 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 writing yeah. all everywhere. And I have all my devices set up so I can just get right to writing. I love writing in Markdown. And then I have little tricks where, you know, uh, I have an app that helps me run a macro on the text and get it ready for the teleprompter. And then okay. I just stick it up there and go. And I can't do all the cool stuff that other YouTubers can do, which I think is awesome. And they're great with, you know, on location shooting and they have somebody filming them on a, um, what they call those things, a gimbal. I have one of those, but none of my family wants to do it and I don't want to make them. So it's usually a talking head. And I, I try to make up for that by having some beautiful backdrops because uh, I live in the Pacific Northwest, which is absolutely terribly beautiful. And I also try to make up for it by being efficient with the time use. So. Um, I don't want to waste people's time with ums and ahs and um, poorly thought out sentences. I want to have thought through this. So yeah, 98% of what I do is scripted. I feel most comfortable that way. It probably is also niche. I feel like some people probably get, um, they get uh, exhausted with the intensity of it all. Like I'm going, 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 and then I'm done. And I think I for sure people go, whoa, whoa. <laughs> but then a lot of people are like, wow they're not he's not wasting my time so again i'm i'm winnowing my audience and i just kind of have to do what comes naturally to me or i can't get it done at all yeah that that, com that makes complete sense you i can tell there's a lot of i would say your videos have a lot of precision when i watch them that's what i'm taken by is they're, they're in a good way there's precision you're not you're not wasting time like you said and uh and do you do do you edit them yourself or do you have help with the editing or one of these days, if um, if Patreon support gets to the right level and I'm just blown away that I have any, I, I only recently started asking for support because I flew down to Dallas uh, to do these, this series of podcasts that's just coming out. And the, the ticket was, um, you know, almost 700 bucks. So I was like, I, the labor is worthy of his hire. Don't muzzle the ox, treads out the corn. I've got to have support. Anyway, if support increased the level where I could do it, I'd love to have, say, somebody in the Philippines or Mexico or something for whom, you know, the wage I can afford is actually really great for them and they can edit it. But no, I edit everything. And that's got to be part of the efficiency. I, I, I have to shoot in such a way that I can edit it pretty easily afterwards. I like editing in Final Cut Pro and Luma Fusion on my iPad Pro is actually how I did the first pretty much two years of videos. And it's an excellent app. It's very, very quick. That's what I do. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, part of that is just selfishness, you know, as somebody who's over the past two years been really focusing on YouTube, I am always interested to hear other people's process because it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, everybody has their own way they do stuff and their own workflow. But I always, I find myself watching. It's like when you go to seminary, you listen to sermons differently than before you went oh, yeah. to seminary. And yes. it, so when I watch totally. videos on YouTube, I, I watch videos differently now than before Me I had too. to learn any of this stuff. So I think it's yeah. interesting. And I think there are going to be some viewers who also think it's interesting. But that's not the main reason I want to have you on. I want to get to the meat and potatoes of why you are here. And I'm going to call you a King James expert. I think you've spent more time. You certainly spent more than 10 years uh, the the was it Malcolm Gladwell's rule of expertise or whatever. So you you've put in the work. Yeah, I I would consider you an expert on English Bible modern English Bible translations and particularly the King James. So some of the questions that I wanted to mention. Let's talk about unicorns in the Bible. What's going on with that? Because I've had people skeptics say the Bible. They believe there was unicorns. You know you can't trust any of that. What is are there unicorns in the Bible, Mark? Because the King James seems to think so. Right. Well, um, this has actually got some complexities in it that I haven't been able to fully sort through here. What a great expert I am. I can't give a definitive <laughs> answer. I did talk about this in Authorized a little bit. I think the word appears nine times in six verses, if I remember correctly. Um, and um, quite obviously, the uh, there are no unicorns as far as we we use that word. Um, white, you know, horses with right. horns, and sometimes they can fly like a Pegasus. But um, you know, my my daughter has unicorns up in her room. Um, there's nothing like that in the real world. And the King James translators did not, I believe, intend to communicate that there was. I think they're taking the etymological, you know, meaning of that word. It just means one horn, mm -hmm. and it comes straight from Latin. And actually, that's one of many examples of words that seem to be influenced by or even drawn directly from the Latin Vulgate, which would have been, you know, utterly common, utterly commonly known and read and understood in Elizabethan England and in Tyndale's time, of course. And he's he's the one who gave us actually most of the King James Bible. It goes right back to Tyndale. Both Old and New Testaments are, you know, above 70 percent and up in the 80 percent, 80th percentile for some of it straight from Tyndale. So, um, I, that is a false friend. Um, that's the terminology I've added to this debate over the King James, because reading it today, you you just have to have some sophistication to realize, okay, language changes over time. There's just no way they meant what we would understand by the word unicorn, but it sure does seem like it's saying uh, that unicorns exist. So that's my answer. Um, I don't think the King James translators did anything wrong. Um, I do think in most of those cases the modern translations go with wild ox or i want to say it's it's possible that the king james translators were thinking rhinoceros and in which case they would have been wrong because i, mm -hmm. I think the consensus now is it's wild ox but the but the translators in the beginning of their preface they acknowledge there are hebrew words for obscure animals and you know rocks and stuff that even the Jewish scholars of the time, they said, don't really know what these words mean. And they're just writing something down to write something. <laughs> it's, it's actually really witty what the King James preface says right there. And so they acknowledge there's some difficulty intended to the meaning of some of these Hebrew words. So that's, that's why I give them a pass. Uh, even if they were thinking rhinoceros, you know, some of these words are difficult or obscure. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I, when people come across that, you know, whether it's unicorn or other words in King James, they need to understand the concept. You just mentioned it, which is false friends. And I've, I've appreciated that you introduced to me that concept because I've, it, it gave me a handle on what I've wanted to say about the King James to people for a long time when I'm explaining why it's not my translation of choice other than the whole manuscript family and that issue. Right. Just in general, there are words that don't mean today what those same words meant back when it was translated. So right. false friends, and, and folks, I'm going to put links to sure. Mark's videos where he talks about false friends. I think you have a playlist or a series of videos about those. So I'm going to link those in the description. But what are some examples, just off the top of your head, maybe like three or four false friend examples you think illustrate the concept the clearest to somebody who's never heard that term and doesn't know what it's about? Um, how long halt ye between two opinions? Elijah says that to the uh, Israelites on Mount Carmel. And I've been there. I mean, it's a stirring story, a stirring spot. And um, he's saying, if you're going to follow the Lord, then follow the Lord. If you're going to follow Baal, then follow Baal. Um, and when he says, how long halt ye? I just always took that as how long are you going to stop, stand stock still in between these two opinions? You know, go one way or the other. But actually, um, I was reading along in the ESV years ago. I was writing Bible curriculum for BJU Press. That was my job for nine years. Really enjoyed doing that. Done some freelance work for them since then. And uh, they have a really important ministry to Christian schools and homeschoolers. And so I was checking different translations because they serve a constituency that goes far beyond, you know, just that part of the church. And so I had to make sure that my Bible textbooks made sense to people using the NIV, ESV, New American Standard, King James, New King James, New Living Translation. So I was checking that as I was wont to do. You know, this is already my briar patch at the time. I was like 30 or 32, I think. And I noticed that the ESV said, how long will you go limping? between two opinions. And I thought, that's not right. Limping is not the same as halt, you know, mm -hmm. stop, halt, who goes there? So then I checked the Hebrew, and the Hebrew was clearly limp. And I thought, the King James translators weren't dummies. Surely they didn't get this wrong. And then I did some more searching. I searched for, uh, for the word halt in the King James, and I saw in the New Testament, Jesus healed the halt and the blind. In other words, the lame or the limping and the blind. And it just hit me, duh, I've been misunderstanding the King James translators all these years through no fault of their own. They couldn't know that halt would drop the sense of limp and come to mean only stop. Um, and through no fault of my own, like what responsibility should I have for keeping up with all of the intricate and obscure and random changes in the English language over the last four or 500 years? Um, but nonetheless, I misunderstood. You know, it's the fault of language change. That's a false friend. That's that's my paradigm, paradigmatic example. Some of my other favorites, just super quickly, God, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think the word commendeth had was an obscure uh, English word that brings up and brings out a little more beauty than the text actually has. <laughs> like the, It's actually a little more specific than the Greek word is, but it, it's like it, it, it was a word that used to have a sense, not just for praising someone, it actually had this other sense of like putting a, a diamond on a diamond on a black velvet cushion to put it on display to showcase it. Mm. You know, God, you know, some people will die for uh, a righteous man, but you know, God showcased his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's another false friend. And then probably one of my very favorites, it's because it's so obscure, so random, and it was sent to me by a, a, 
a missionary to the foreign field who graduated from a King James only Bible college mm -hmm. and was working with the King James only mission board and ultimately had to leave the field in part because he no longer could support King James onlyism. Super gracious guy. He was listening carefully to what I was saying and he came across so that in first Kings eight twenty five, and I'm, it's going to take me a second to find it. But in that verse, this is part of uh, Solomon's high priestly prayer. And he says, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way. And what that sounds to us like is, you know, God's giving this promise. There's not going to be, you know, you're not going to fail to have a man in your line, uh, in David's line, to sit on the throne of Israel in order that your children take heed to their way and walk before me as you did. But that doesn't make any sense. If you really, if you really stop and think about it, it's got to be, uh, it's got to mean something more like if only sure enough, the Hebrew means if only, and if you go squirreling away in the Oxford English dictionary, like I do just about every day, <laughs> I'm addicted to it. You will find sure enough. So that used to have the used to sometimes mean if only, Who's going to possibly know that? Yeah, I, and why should I have to know that? I would never have known that if you had not just told me that right now. <laughs> yeah, so in, it's almost like if you use the King James as your only English translation, then you need the Oxford English Dictionary as your lexicon. Because so many of the right. words, and, and you don't even know, the, the, that's the thing about false friends that you point out is sometimes, most of the time, you don't even know that you are mean the word means what you think it means because it's you think right. you know what it means you think it's a normal word that you're used to right that insight from your videos i think was one of the most uh i think one of the most profound in the king james only debate was because it was showing you king james only people like to immediately or in my experience like to jump to things like manuscript variants and why you can trust this right. and why you can trust that right and I think what you do in your book and in your videos is you kind of just sidestep that for the most part right. and say, okay, right. granted, let's say that the Textus Receptus is the most accurate Greek manuscript. Just looking at the King James translation, there are some major problems that have nothing to do, like you said, there no fault of the translators. And I just urge anybody in, among your listening audience who ever uh, in God's providence needs to deal with a King James onlyist of any stripe, um, the more extreme or the less extreme, um, don't get into textual criticism with them. You know, nine times out of nine, both participants in the discussion don't actually read Greek. And how can you actually have a discussion? You know, there is that one time out of 10, maybe where one person will know Greek and one person won't. And I'll let you guess which person in the conversation won't know Greek. But even then, it, it's just totally fruitless. But what you, how can you argue about manuscripts written in a language that only one of you or neither of you can read? It, it's, it's just foolishness. Proverbs mm -hmm. talks about this, answering a matter before you hear it. <clears throat> There's a degree to which um, all of us just, just do have to trust some other people who've done work that we're never going to be able to get to do. We cannot validate every translation or textual decision made by others. I'm not saying be irresponsible. I'm not saying be a sheeple, <laughs> you know, learn all you can, but recognize that in the end, there's going to be experts out there who themselves are trusting other experts 
on other things, you know. So I'm a New Testament guy. There's plenty of Old Testament stuff, you know. Uh, what's that? The, the Genesis 49 mention of Shiloh. What does that mean? Okay, well, I'm just going to probably go with the most responsible and respected evangelical, you know, Old Testament scholars there. I'll try to learn the, you know, the ins and outs as much as I can, but ultimately I'm still trusting them. Anyway, that's what's going on with textual criticism with the great, great majority of people. So instead of arguing about that, we should focus on what the Bible does. The Bible never tells us how to adjudicate among manuscript differences in the Greek New Testament or in the Hebrew Bible, but it does tell us edification requires intelligibility. You know, I've said this so many times on my channel. First Corinthians 14, that's the argument we should be having. And, and I don't have to talk about textual criticism. Why should I? When there are other translations of the Masoretic text and Textus Receptus that that use contemporary English and therefore don't have these archaisms. So let's talk about that. I'm trying to shift the debate in that direction and praise God. I think I've seen some success in that. Yeah, well, it's, it is having, it's bearing fruit for sure. And um, I, my, my rule of thumb is when I, our course here at Disciple Dojo Bible for the rest of us, it's a hermeneutics course, but we never use the word hermeneutics because that scares people away is uh, the more, my rule of thumb, the more, dogmatic someone is about a particular translation the likely it is that they are not as well educated in text criticism or translation theory right. and right. i've never seen an exception to that in any discussions that i've had or participated in i think the people that and, know how it works are the right. least insistent on you have to use this translation this translation or this translation yeah, absolutely. And and we all ought to take a lesson from that, like we would if we were looking at some other field where there are experts, and the experts are the ones who are actually saying, you know, we're not going to land on this question. This is one of the difficult questions, or there are legitimately, you know, different answers there. Um, yeah. it, it does strike me so often what a folly and shame it is to people to, as the King James translators put, dogmatize peremptorily. You know, make a hard statement about something before they've actually examined it, um, and that's what Proverbs says is a falling shame people answering a matter before you 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 hear it. Yeah, I'm totally with you. It's it's not just in theology. I mean, you know, we see it in our culture. There's there's almost a pride in not doing what people say the experts and right. The, it's this. There, there's a balance like you talk about you don't want to blindly follow what anybody who has the title expert says because that's gullibility right. that's you know right. marching to the slaughter and yes but you also can't go to the other end which is the what i call them the do your research crowd um on social media where they'll post something just outlandish and then when you disagree right. and point out why you disagree they'll say well you just need to do your research and right, right. they they just mean you need to read the youtube watch the YouTube videos they watched or read the blog posts that they right. wrote. Um, but I think I feel like that is a, a pride issue at the end of the day. I mean, it, it inflames our pride to think we're the ones that are truly hearing from the Lord. Everybody else, they are just false teachers. And, uh, yeah. or, or you're in your case, you know, you're just overly educated. You got that. You went to one of them cemeteries and they yeah. filled your brain with all this knowledge and God doesn't want knowledge. He wants your heart. And you know, right. I, I could right. rant for an hour just on that subject, but I want to know because I yeah. know you've gotten some things said about you like that. Tell me, share some of 
what you would consider the more colorful or creative <laughs> hate mail that you've gotten yeah. in your uh, career <laughs> so far. Well, you know, maybe can I preface that by saying it's really understandable that we've got this problem, not only because of human fallenness and pride. Yes, that is absolutely rife on social media. There is just no way that people who've never even looked at a Greek letter should be going on my channel and telling me I'm ignorant. That is, again, folly and shame to those people. It is sin. But in their defense, this is a very confusing world, and we are finite, not just fallen. Mm. And in the social media landscape with so many voices, not just flying back and forth, but screaming back and forth, and it's all happening so fast, I feel lost sometimes. You know, when COVID hit, and we don't need to get into the truly divisive elements of that, but I had to make some decisions as an assistant pastor. And I found it very difficult um, to just wade through everything that I was being presented with. You know, I instinctively just rejected the people who said experts are dumb and they're out to mislead you. I know that can't be right. But I did see there's an error on the other side of, you know, a theater of, um, what do they call it? You know, COVID theater. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, kind of like the TSA has had to become in our, yeah. our, in our world. So um, it's just really hard. And textual criticism is very complicated. And it is difficult. I understand this to accept inerrancy. You know, the Bible is inspired and authoritative. And yet, there are some of these areas where we're not totally sure what the text says. I get why that is difficult. So I, I understand where people are coming from. But um, there is no excuse for sin, ultimately, for mine or anyone else's. And among the mo most col colorful things, well, you know, I can't even tell you. I literally can't and won't tell you the most colorful things that people have said because they're sexually dirty. And right, I think they're defiling even to repeat them. Um, and I did one time have to take, I felt I had to, I felt I was obliged to do this, to take a pastor to his session. He was in a Presbyterian denomination mm. because what he said was so sexually vile. I mm. could not believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, this is the one person I know of who's done this to me, who has, praise God, an authority structure over him who would actually care about this sin of his. Mm. I'm, I'm saying people really have sinned and right. it's, it's not just the normal internet back and forth. Of course, the normal internet back and forth has a lot of sin in it too. But um, <laughs> yeah. other things that people have said, you know, somebody not only called me a weasel, but um, Photoshopped in a very amateurish way, my, a weasel uh, uh, onto my face. And so when <laughs> I talked about that in a video, I, I use my Photoshop skills. I'm a designer on the side and I did a much better job of put a weasel on my yeah, my body. And if you're going to make him a weasel, at least have some decent <laughs> skills. <at it. laughs> yeah, um, I'm a Jesuit to um, okay. a secret yeah. Catholic because I have this sweater that and a white collared shirt that to them, it's thumbnail size looked like a clerical collar. Yeah, uh, that was of one of the more colorful ones. <laughs> you know, um, I'm constantly being told that I'm a liar. Mm -hmm. And I think the more careful charge is that I'm disingenuous. And I've actually done some thinking about this because 
I think I know what they're saying. I think they see the critical text and the textus receptus as massively different. There's a great gulf fixed between the two, like literally one is from hell and one is from heaven. And when I say, let's not talk about that, let's talk about what to them are these comparatively minor piddly things that anybody can look up in a dictionary. They never answer the false friends questions. How, they, how are people supposed to look up things they don't know? They don't, re- they don't realize they're, they're misunderstanding. <laughs> right. But um, I think, so when I say, let's not talk about text, I see why they think I'm being disingenuous. I actually understand that. Uh, but they don't listen long enough to you know, represent me accurately either. And I'm not a liar and I'm not being disingenuous. I genuinely don't believe that yeah. the differences between the critical text and the Texas Receptus are massive. Certainly, it's not that one is corrupt and the other is holy. Either way, I would, I would be willing to use the Texas Receptus, and I have done it many, many, many times in Bible teaching, writing, and preaching when I am asked to. So I, um, I, they're the ones who are saying there's a big difference. Those are some of the more colorful uh, things that, that I've heard. Um, there's all the usual stuff, you know, people proclaiming that I'm out of my depth or I, um, you know, oh, it's going to be totally obvious to the whole world now that, you know, what Mark Ward is saying is foolish. But um, I, I wade through a lot of that stuff in order to get to the serious objections that sometimes do lie in the kernel. Mm-hmm. And it does it does get to me sometimes, but um, I there are it, only your critics are going to notice some of your inconsistencies. Your fans just aren't going to notice them. So I wade through a lot of that stuff, and I do get some good objections. And if only they would stop calling me a liar and stop going <laughs> right for ad hominem, they right. might actually get a fun conversation with me. It's too bad. Yeah, yeah. That's it, it, it's a tricky thing because the the rule of the internet is don't read the comment section, you know, to keep your sanity. <laughs> yeah. And totally, I get that. But at the same time, like you said, sometimes even from the most obnoxious people, you still there, there, there is a point they're making that someone who's not as obnoxious as them would have made a million times better, and would have forced right. you to deal with. And so I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm always, I, I do. Re, I mean, I'm not anybody enough to have a massive number of like troll armies after me or anything. Nobody's boycotting yeah. Disciple Dojo because nobody even knows what we do. But I, I still try to read through comments, even when they're negative, even when they're unfair, even when they're uncharitable, because y- you do you can learn from it. You can learn from your critics. Um, You just have to have a thick skin, I think. And and also realize the nature of anonymous commenting lends itself to people being terrible. (laughs) Just people are terrible. Uh, You know, the doctrine of depravity is easily proved by any comment section. (laughs) Right. You you have to love your neighbor as yourself or you're never going to get through it. And some days I don't, (laughs) I get angry and I sin. Occasionally, yeah. I have I have cursed people under my breath. The first moment they insult me, I'm being super honest with you here, and my opponents can do with this what they like. By God's grace, I repent right after that, and I never write the comment while I'm feeling. I never reply while I'm feeling like that. Mm-hmm. When people go right for personal insult, it has an effect. That's yeah. what they're going for, I guess. Um, but... I knew this was going to happen going into it. I had watched the way King James Onlyists respond to, you know, people like me for going on decades before I ever started it. And so I very self-consciously chose this ministry, felt called to it. Also, I constantly think these are sheep caught in a trap. And when I reach down to them to free them, they're going to nip at my arms. And I've had 
a number of folks tell me, when I first encountered you, I hated you. But some, for some reason, I kept listening. Yeah. And now I see what you were doing, and I'm sorry for that comment. I, and that's wonderful. That makes yeah, it when you get it. that, when you get that, uh, that vindication, it's huge. Because it, it, you, there are so many times where, if you're, like what you just said is, is a very good point. And I think people watching this should pay attention. There are some issues, if you're going to speak on them, you need to know in advance the type of right. antagonism you're going to receive so that when right. it does happen, it doesn't surprise you and it, it dampens, it doesn't erase, but it dampens that natural defensiveness that we might feel Absolutely. if it were any other topic. Yeah. You were talking to members of your ministry board. I don't know how formal that is. Uh, I'd love to hear. Actually, that's one of my questions for you. You've been doing this, that sort of thing, you know, longer than I have because you were doing those Bible studies. But I have an informal ministry board and people who support me both literally with money and um, on Patreon, and they pray for me. And especially one, um, I won't use his name just in case, but he constantly is messaging me. I won't say constantly, regularly, which is better than constantly, saying, I'm praying for you. How's it going? And I'll ask him questions. And he was just telling me, don't do what you want to do. Some people were just blasting away at me, and I had what I thought was a wickedly funny, you know, witty retort. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been, you know, I've been working on this actually for quite some time. And I sent it to him, and he just said, "No, you've got to love your enemies." And I needed that, so um, yeah. that's that's an essential part of this ministry too. Yeah. I can get myself thinking I'm the gracious guy, <laughs> but. But that sin lies in me, too, the same sin that is in my opponents. And not in all of them. I do have gracious opponents. I really do. And I love mm. that. Absolutely. Mm. I get to know that these people across this aisle, that I kind of feel we both wish weren't there. We feel there is something more important uniting us. We wish we didn't have to disagree. I built mm. some friendships across this aisle. It's kind of crazy. Um, but that's, that's rare. It, no, it's a real phenomenon on social media. There are people who my, most of, for for probably about twelve years, my main uh, interaction ministry, the the engage part of Disciple Dojo's motto, which is equip, engage, yeah. empower. The engage part has always been primarily through social media, cultural engagement, discussions, fostering difficult discussions, and then doing it in a way that shows people you can have those discussions without hating right. each other at the end. And right. on social media, there have been people who they when I see when they comment on my thread, I know like, oh, OK, what are they going to say this time? And some of the ones who most annoy me are also the ones who I do genuinely get along with. And it's only yeah. when we come to one particular issue that I have to roll my eyes because I know what they're going to say. And it's going to be kind of sometimes obnoxious. Yeah. But but in general that's not their entire personality. And when I've gotten to know right. them in other aspects, we found out, oh, we get along pretty well. We just really butt heads on this issue. So how can right. we harness this in a way that, we, you know, one of my, one of my friends in, here in Charlotte is uh, Dr. Michael Brown, who's, uh, you know, conservative, Messianic Jewish uh, voice. And he and I have known and admired him for years and years. And, there's there's an issue when it comes to things involving the Middle East and um, things on the ground where we butt heads and have butted heads for probably almost 10 years now. But we were able to do a debate at Gordon-Conwell, open it to the public and let people come in and do a friendly, moderated discussion that harnessed that headbutting. 
in a way yeah. to get everybody to think through it. And, and it was to me, if that needs to happen more, you know, there needs yeah. to be more yeah. honest discussions among people who genuinely disagree without the vitriol. I mean, the teasing and the sparring, you know, I'm a martial artist. Sparring is what makes you better in martial arts. You're not trying to kill the person, but you are trying to tap right. them out. Uh, right. I think there's a, a, a place for that. Um, don't know how to achieve it completely yet, but I don't know if right, anybody right. does. <laughs> right. It, it's tough. I've, I've done a lot of thinking about um, internet debate because of all this. And one of these years, I feel like I want to write a big article just describing the phenomena that seems to attend nearly all internet debates. So maybe it'll help some of us get past some well, of those Well, I tell you, and you're in publishing, or at least have a lot of, you know, you're, you're in that world. There is a need for a Christian online ethic, a Christian social media ethics yeah. textbook or, or book or symposium or something, because we're in a time, I think that the technological, the technological change just from when you and I, we're about to say, I just turned 44. How old are you? Yeah, I'm 41. Okay. So we're, we're in that same window. Just the yeah. change in technology in our lifetime is greater than any other point in human history in terms of the world we were born into and the world we live in now yeah. and Christian yeah. ethics have had enough hard enough time keeping up with long span changes. So right. something this fast, I, you know, I think there's, there's, that's an area I would love to see more input yeah. in among Christians, but there's a quote you had in your book and it said, the bylaws of Christian publishing require at least one chapter in each Christian book to begin with a CS Lewis quote. And then you went on and shared one. Now, I love that quote because like you, I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. Yeah. Um, I think no, I have said there, there are two people who I say read everything they've ever written that you can find. Yep. One is C.S. Lewis. And then for me, number two is Christopher Wright. Uh, those, I think, are the two just I've never read anything by them that I thought, oh, I wish I wouldn't have read that. What yeah. is it? One, what's your favorite C.S. Lewis work? And two, um, why have Christians who massively disagree with C.S. Lewis on a number of issues continue to see him as almost like this evangelical saint, even though he was not an yeah. evangelical? Well, I happen to know you're going to like this answer. Paralandra is my favorite C.S. Lewis book. The scientifically correct yeah. answer. Yes. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's no, but why do you like yeah. it? I've had a video on it where I share why I like it. Why? Why? Why should people read Paralandra? I think. It is so insightful to um, view the, you know, the discussion between Satan and Eve through the lens of this sort of update, this reimagining of what it would be like on another planet. And even just recently, okay, so I, so I think one of the measures of a good book is that you think of it often, right? It influences you. And I was just thinking about Paralandra the other day when there is a progressive of individual within an evangelical-ish denomination um, who was making an argument, sort of one of those trajectory arguments that, you know, that God doesn't actually mean for some of the ethics of the New Testament that are on the page to remain because uh, and be applicable today. He's actually hoping that we will, you know, move beyond those and um, he actually, he brought out, for example, some people are going to know who I'm talking about now. I don't really want to bring up the particulars, but he was talking about how um, Mary 
said to Jesus, you know, they're lacking wine in John 2, the wedding at Cana. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, what do I have to do with you, woman? Which is one of those hard sayings of Jesus, sort of like Aslan, actually, where you're kind of wondering, okay, why did he respond so apparently harshly? And uh, Jesus, or Mary says, go do whatever he says to the servants. And so this guy said, well, you know, Mary disobeyed. You know, Jesus said, now's not the time, but Mary went and did something anyway. And so we need to do the same thing. And I just thought, that's the unman talking to the lady of Venus saying, I know he said, don't sleep on the fixed lands. God did, but he didn't really mean that. He wants you to transcend his commandment and self-actualize. And there you go. You know, it just happens. I'm not smart enough. Well, I wasn't smart enough at the time. Maybe I'm still not. I don't know. I'm a little fearful to find out. The third book in the trilogy, I didn't quite get it, but I have Mm -hmm. thought about it too. Um, Mm -hmm. Over the years, there's moments and seats from it. I, did, I didn't wasn't as big a fan of the first one, but I I love so many C.S. Lewis things, and he can he can write in multiple genres. It's just so yeah. amazing. Why do so many Christians like him across denominational lines? In part because of his his um, his illustration in Mere Christianity about the rooms off of the Christian hallway, and I think that is intuitively true to Christian people who recognize I take doctrine seriously, I take the Bible very seriously, I want to obey and not disobey. But that guy over there, that one over there, who are in different denominational traditions, I sense, I just know, they love the Lord and trust Him the way I do, and yet they don't agree on these individual points. You know, that might mean we can't have church together. That's sad. But I feel we're going to be in heaven together. You know, there's a line beyond which that's not true. People who claim the name of Christ but aren't, you know, and Jesus said it himself. But Lewis has that healthy sense. And um, also, I think it's nice it's nice to have somebody on your side who is incredibly smart. <laughs> you just, that's just comforting. Yeah. Uh, Lewis is obviously just off the charts, intelligent, uh, amazing memory. And then what does he do? He brings insights over and over and over again. And how can you not thank somebody who does that for you? That's, that's my answer to your question. Yeah. It's a great one. I completely agree. I think he has the ability to reframe basic truths in unexpected ways in using metaphor, using imagery, uh, comparisons that few people, if any, have ever been able to match. And right. you talk about the the voice of the unman. I mean, Mark, I'm an evangelical United Methodist. For 40 years, we have been bombarded right. with the voice of the unman. And right. every every discussion I've participated in, in my tribe, I have heard the voice of the unman over and over and over and it's yeah. it, it's so it's so applicable uh, to so many situations yeah right. that's right could not agree more well let me ask you this about the king james a uh, couple of questions real quick is there only one king james or were there multiple versions did it drop down from heaven uh, on a golden pillow or just in a in a nutshell is is the whole idea that the King James Bible is the English Bible that the Holy Spirit gave, does that stand up to history, yes or no? No, and go to kjbhistory.com, run by my excellent, respected friend, Tim Berg, who's also part of my Textual Competence Collective, whose series of seven podcasts is, as of this recording, you know, we've put out two of them. Uh, the other five, Lord willing, are coming, and then we're going to do a discussion again, Lord willing, after that. I've watched um, the first one. The, they are very good. I, I'm going to put a link to those in the description as well. The first one you. was great. 
he's he's the expert on the history i'm still more the philologist but Mm. yeah what i know of the history marks this out as something rather different from from that i mean simply put the king james only world in all of its varieties uh some of which aren't quite king james only and i try to we try to be careful about how we describe the groups but they have these overtones that are similar they they do tend to talk about the text in an absolutist way and the less responsible, more extreme ones talk about the King James itself as being perfect. But one of my friends across the aisle there, his name is Brian Ross. I just find him to be honest and humble. He's pointed out over and over again, he's a historian to his own tribe. He's saying, but we've had multiple different King James editions and they weren't all the same. Even after 1769, when it kind of settled down to the Benjamin Blaney edition, he's pointed out there are these minor differences so you cannot say this text absolutely is the perfect one. Um, even within the, the King James editions, you have to pick one, right? If you're going to say it's the perfect one. Mm. Um, and there's there's not an obvious candidate. Most people don't even know that there's more than one King James. It's just, right. I think there's one. And, and they don't realize right. there was a history of translation and uh, versions of the King James. Exactly. Yeah. Well, then, so what do you see as is a what would you say? Because you're not anti King. I want to make this clear, and your no. book makes this clear. You're yeah. not anti King James. I probably take not a more hands off. I'm probably more anti King James than you, and I'm not anti King James. I just don't prefer it for a number of reasons. You're probably more comfortable with it overall than I am. And so, for yeah. some people who are comfortable, who did grow up with the King James, or who just like it for whatever reason, what what do you see as its rightful place in in modern English Bible study and church use? And it is it's the one ring to rule them all, and it's it's had more influence than any other translation, and so you have to reckon with it as the most significant point on the historical timeline. It casts a shadow, and that means that all of its decisions now seem normal and traditional and un, you know at least initially unobjectionable uh and even translations today that aren't you know under any moral obligation to stick with king james the individual renderings in the king james they often sort of default to it in my um experience so you know the exception would be the net bible i feel like the net bible is one of the major evangelical translations that almost like chooses to not follow the King James in places where it could take a different interpretation. I find that useful. I don't think Mm -hmm. they're trying trying to tweak anybody's nose. I think that's kind of goes back to the purpose of the translation, which was really actually the notes and the description of all the translation and, you know, textual decisions that they're having to make. Um, Yeah. You've just got to know the King James. If you're really going to understand the history of English Bible translation, I do think that it, it can play a role as sort of the solemn text and, you know, at my funeral, if they um, read Psalm 23 or the Lord's Prayer, I'd rather it be in Elizabethan language. No, no matter, you know, like, I'm write this down here, everybody, whoever's in charge of my funeral, and hopefully <laughs> decades hence, I want the King James at my funeral uh, in those key passages. But mm-hmm. if there's a preacher at my funeral, I sure hope there is, who preaches the gospel, <clears throat> I'm not going to do that weird thing where I record a gospel message myself and make them play it. That's just bizarre. <laughs> Never heard of that. But, but yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if the preacher preaches, don't preach from the King James, brother, please, because I want the people at my funeral, especially my non-Christian relatives that I hope will come. I want them to understand everything that you're saying. But when the Bible is just 
is mainly there to provide that solemnity, that traditional, you know, uh, feel. And there are times for that. I think the Lord's Prayer and, you know, the Psalm 23 are some of those texts. I'm, I'm, I reach for the King James myself. But that's, that's a comparatively small amount of Bible use in my mind, you know. I don't read from the King James frequently anymore. I don't remember the last time I read all the way through it. It might have been 18 years ago, um, maybe 20. Um, I, I don't recommend that people do that until they've already read through contemporary translations. So I'm not, if the King James were totally unused, um, you know, or used as often as Tyndale's, you know, New Testament say, I wouldn't be sad. Um, I think the point of reading your Bible is understanding it, right? But while we still have it around and, um, you know, I, I think there's value in, in reading it and knowing that tradition. Like you said, there's a, it has formed Bible translation uh, for better or for worse. And every, every translation that comes after it, I, that's why I use it in my study. I right. always will compare how did the King James say this? Because that's going to tell me how the later translations down the road were their default approach to it usually. And you say for better for, for, or for worse. I think it is mostly for better. Like the vast majority of it is for better. And um, nobody in the King James only world seems to register that I say this. I don't know if they just disbelieve me, but I think the King James tradition has proven its utility, its value. And that's why I sort of default to the ESV if I'm if I'm asked to, and I'm not really asked to. <laughs> I guess for, for the Bible study magazine that I edit, I never mentioned that. I edit Bible study magazine. Like, mm-hmm. We use the ESV now. I finally just standardized it to make it easier for myself. And why did I do pick that one? Because I think it, it probably is the closest to the King James as far as what the King James translators would produce today if they were alive today. It's mostly formal, but not slavishly so cares about literary beauty i think the esv is a worthy heir to it i am certainly not as you know trying to uh, cast aspersions on the niv or the csb those have their place too but if i am have a gun to my head push comes to shove that's the, the esv is what i reach for because i want to honor the king james tradition that makes sense and and especially given the the area of evangelicalism from which you come and and which you're primarily right. involved in um, your two choices would be ESV or New Revised Standard Version, and it makes sense to, that you would lean that way. Um, I, your recent video, by the way, on the new, the updated edition of the NRSV, I shared it on social media because I completely agreed with it, and um, maybe that in the future we can talk more about that one because yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm interested to see how it's received. But I, on that note, because people always ask me this, so I'm sure they ask you, uh, I, I recommend people when if, it, if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, first of all, I think you should learn the basics of those, both of those languages. It's not super hard, but I know for some people that's just not possible. So if you only have access to English Bibles, which we all do now, thanks to modern technology, what pick three Bibles, one thought for thought, one word for word, and then one somewhere in the middle what would your recommendation for those three be to just the average view of this that wants to kind of have a broad understanding of what they're reading? I, that, that's a really hard one. If I'm, if I'm forced to choose three, and that's kind of the thing, nobody is, right? right? Nobody has to choose just three. But if that's the 
constraint I have. I'm going to have to say you could you could say two or three, three or four. You know, just (laughs) I have three that just kind of bup up up because it makes sense. But then I always tell people, or if you don't like this one, use this one. You know, so I completely understand what you're saying. But just to give somebody, I guess, a starting point, they want to buy a couple of study Bibles to have on the shelf. Yeah, you know, in different translations. So off the top of your head. ESV would probably be um, your. Would that be your middle approach, or would that be more to um, your formal equivalent? That that would probably be the most formal. I'm not probably going to recommend the NASB to that person. Um, if I get three, I'm probably going to say ESV, NIV, and CSB. Um, mm-hmm. If the person is slightly more academic, um, I might replace uh, either the CSB or the NIV with the Net Bible and and send them to the notes. The you notes. did say Study Bible. Um, I just think it's really helpful to to get to see you know the ingredients that the cooks put into the broth um i think it's faith building to see that and i think it really helps develop your understanding if you look over and over again at the options available to translators as much as you know can be conveyed to you in english so that you know anything anything that's the major modern evangelical english bible translations i'm comfortable recommending those are the ones i know well and the ones that I trust, the ones where I know and trust, you know, numbers of the translators because I've read their commentaries and books. And I, I will link in the description to it, but your quick thoughts on the Passion Translation. Yeah. <laughs> Enough said. Um, I, yeah. Well, I should say more. Um, John MacArthur got in big trouble when he gave a really short answer to what should have been a complex question. And I don't want to do that either. Um, I was very careful to point out the good in it when I did two videos and I'm planning to do another one. You know, there's tons of truth in it. And if that's all you had on on a desert island, I think you could come to know the Lord and love him and understand him pretty well. But uh, it also is based on some frankly wacky, uh, extreme charismatic views of what translation is and what the originals are. Um, the Hebrew homonymy thing, it's just like one of those ideas where he says that these words can have multiple different meanings and God had given him, Brian Simmons, the translator, the secret key. Mike Winger, of yeah. course, has done the best on this. Yeah. And he hired Daryl Bach and Trumper Longman and Vijay Gupta and others to help. But um, it's just so wacky. It's like I hardly even know where to start with yes. this. But it, it makes it makes scripture into a wax nose. And I'm really alarmed by that. So I don't recommend the Passion Translation. You're, I'm, people do, I want them to go watch the tra- Passion Translation video that you did just so they can hear you say, that's the fourth dumbest thing I've heard today. Uh, I <laughs> laughed out loud at that line. I don't know if it was written or off the cuff, but it literally made me laugh out prepared. loud when I saw it. Okay. Uh, so I was like, I, that alone is, knows, I'm, I know I'm going to like this guy. Um, just for well, okay. <laughs> you you want to talk nerdy? You want to know where that joke comes from? No, it comes where? from. Okay, you're gonna know. I have to tell you, the there's a comedy barbershop quartet called Fred, and they won the competition, the international competition, you know, years and years ago. But they they lost it or got second or third or fifth or fourth, you know, multiple times leading up to finally winning it. And they sang this song, this parody song, instead of "Who'll Take um, My Place." Or who'll take your place when you're gone? Something like that. I can't remember what the original song is, but it was who'll take fourth place when I'm gone. <laughs> so I'm sorry. That's what was going through my head when I told that joke. Yeah, but you spun it and made it your own. 
And I did. Well done. <laughs> did you see? I, now this is. I, you went to Bob Jones, so I don't. I would assume maybe the answer is not. But did you ever see the Simpsons episode where Homer joined the barbershop quartet? Of course I did. Yes, <laughs> my devotion to barbershop means I push past those those barriers. I did watch The Simpsons in in high school before I went to Bob Jones. It is like I, it's too crass for me now. I can't take it. But there's these couple episodes that I've actually showed my kids, and I think that was one of them. The yeah. one where they also there's just a couple, and then there's these satirical moments that are just so gold. Um, I think about them all the time. <laughs> my dad, who is also a pastor, um, we the the one show that we actually both watched and enjoyed together was The Simpsons when I was in uh, high, about that age, the the golden years when it was uh, really at the cusp. But yeah. Did you ever read um, the Gospel According to the Simpsons? I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was interesting to hear because he, he's not a Christian. It was a Jewish writer looking at the gospel elements. It's, yeah, that that is uh, far afield from the subject, so we will not talk more Simpsons. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, we I know you've got to run, and so we will wrap it up. It's a shame that uh, this hasn't happened before. So yeah. it's uh, really been. Nice to get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, and I, I'm going to continue pointing folks to uh, your material. I think it's really good. And I think, like I said, having connections with people outside of our tribes and with people who we don't have to agree on everything, and, and we can still learn uh, so much from each other. And, and I really do appreciate that about you Um where can people where's the best way well, one where do you want people to go to yeah. you know see your work and then two what is the preferred way if somebody wanted to reach you if they had a question about the king james bible or um sure you know anything like that my youtube channel is the place to go and that's where i'm putting most of my energies now as far as outside my work and to contact me i do have a blog with a contact form it's by faithweunderstand.com and you can find my contact form there and I, I get questions just about well all the time every week at least sometimes every day I try to answer everything that comes in yeah, yeah I'm, I'm happy to hear questions about the King James from folks yeah good stuff and what's your role what's your uh, actual role at uh, Faith Life or Lagos or what is the difference between Faith yeah. Life and Lagos what, Faith you know, Life I've reviewed Lagos company. but uh, go ahead yeah Faith Life is the parent company Logos or Logos, either one is fine. Oh, I was going to ask you which software. pronunciation is the correct one, the Erasmus. Or... <laughs> yeah, you'll understand this then. We use Logos with people who've learned Greek in America because they've most likely learned the Erasmus pronunciation, Logos. But people who haven't taken Greek will think it's L-A-G-A-S, so we say Logos to make it clear it's two O's. Um, so I, if I'm talking to a more scholarly or pastoral audience, I'll probably say Logos. If I'm talking to more lay audience, I'll probably say Logos. So if I don't know, I'll stick with Logos. But Logos is our major product. It's not our only product. I'm the editor of Bible Study Magazine, which is a lot of fun to do. And uh, that comes out every two months. And the point is to kind of win people to the kind of Bible study that Logos facilitates, which I would call evangelical, faithful, you know, but academically um, responsible Bible study. And so I just get to kind of nerd out on that stuff as a writer and editor, soliciting articles. That's my main job. Did you have any role in the Faith Life Study Bible? No, that was before my time. Okay. Um, that was before I even came to the company. But I worked with a bunch of people at Lexham Press. I was I, for several years. I worked at Lexham Press, and I still you know consult with them some. Um, yeah. A bunch of them are still there that that did that study Bible. 
And is Lexum under Faith Life? Or? Yes. Okay. I am not always sure of the relationships between all the publishing entities when I review Bibles. Uh, yes. Because I just mainly focus on the, the theological content. And so people will ask me questions sometimes, and that's one of those questions. Is Faith Life, Lagos, Lexum, what is the relationship? And I've never been. Yeah, that's sure. partly our fault. And Lexum is getting some something more of an independent um, reputation. I would I would say more than something. It used to be a grab bag of stuff that we at Logos produced, but right. now they do actual serious books, including authorized the use and misuse of King James Bible, which is another way that people can kind of connect with my work. Yes, run, don't walk, go get it, pick up your copy today. Uh, <laughs> it's short and it has jokes. It is is very readable and very um, and it was an entertaining read. It's not I I, I didn't know going into it because I have the Kindle, so I can't really see the size uh-huh. or thickness or anything. Uh, so I I knew it was going to be interesting. I didn't know what I was going to get when I started reading it, and I read it very quickly because it is a very engaging read. So folks, check it out. Thank I'm you. going to put a link in the bio to that and to a number of the other things that we've mentioned here in this video. Mark, thank you so much. Enjoy so the rest of your beautiful day out there in, in Seattle area. About an hour north of Seattle. Okay. Up there in, in, in God's other country. God's country is the south, as yeah. we all know, but his other country is Pacific Northwest. So enjoy it's the time beautiful. up there. <laughs> thank you. God bless you, brother. Appreciate all right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks again to Mark for sitting down and taking time to talk with us. If you haven't already, get a copy of his book, Authorized. It's available as I have on Kindle or in print. And it's a great book on the history and the usage and the misusage of the King James Bible. Very readable, suitable for a lay audience. You don't have to be Bible nerds like he and I. I really do recommend this book. It was really enjoyable. Thanks for watching. We'll see you back here for more interviews with names you should know out there in the world of biblical scholarship. Take care.